You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. A few months ago, I got into an argument with a friend of mine about Google's new driverless car. I'm much less optimistic about technology than he is, and I couldn't share his enthusiasm about this new marvel. All I could think of is the tens of thousands of professional drivers, taxis and buses and delivery vehicles, who would be put out of work when and if the Google car replaced those outmoded cars that actually needed a human being to drive them. And he, in turn, couldn't understand why I would want to curtail the freedom of the people designing and manufacturing these cars. Technology, he argued, has made our lives much better, and in fact we live, he said, in the safest and best time that humanity has ever known. I disagreed, and so we came to a standstill. He the techno-optimist, I the apocalyptic doomsdayer. I bring this story up because when I later read Christina Bieber-Lake's latest book, Prophets of the Post-Human, American Fiction, Biotechnology, and the Ethics of Personhood, I found myself wishing that she'd been with me during that argument. Much of what I was trying to say about why our age is not, in fact, the greatest in the history of the world, and why I'm nervous about ceding our future to the leaders of the tech industry, are said with much more eloquence and insight in this book. Unfortunately, I can't go back in time to argue more effectively. Not even Google has invented a time machine yet. But fortunately, Christina Bieber-Lake, who is the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College, is our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for coming on the show, Christina. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is your second book, and uh, while there's a little bit of overlap with your first in that you talk about Flannery O'Connor in both of them, the subject of biotechnology seems pretty far removed from your previous work. Can you talk for a few minutes about how you got interested in the subjects you discuss in this book? Yes, I'm grateful for the question, actually, because to me there's a lot of continuity between the two books because what I was saying about Flannery O'Connor was that she was writing all of her fiction to defy, you know, sort of Gnostic um, intellectual ideas in America. So in other words, she was writing fiction that says basically you are your body as well as your soul and the only way that God communicates with people is through that body. And so... I became very interested in the question of the body, and that's what led me to research in in biotechnology. It's sort of like taking the same intellectual and theological issues but applying them more broadly. Does that make sense? It it does. So so would you say that that some of the technologies you discuss here are like a new Gnosticism? Absolutely. I mean I've heard the term techno-Gnosticism, and I think that's accurate. Um, Basically one of the main premises of the book is that we are – pretty much Gnostic in our view of the body. Um, That's why post-human, the definition I use for post-human is from Catherine Hales because she said we became post-human when we let the Turing test define the parameters of what it means to be human, which is basically intellectual or data or pattern recognition, not embodiment. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is Gnosticism, um, quite frankly and simply. And, and the view of the body that comes through Gnosticism is, as she puts it, the prosthesis that you can manipulate any way you'd like. So we are both obsessed with our bodies, but also fundamentally thinking they don't have anything to do with our spiritual realities, both of those things at the same time. And you've got neuroscience encroaching from the other direction that says we're nothing but our brains, mm-hmm. which is yeah. whatever the opposite of, I guess, materialism. Materialism, the funny thing is that it is an opposite and yet it loops back on it in the same way. You know, there's no soul. Uh, <laughs> we're just our bodies. Um, so it's, a, it's an odd opposite. And of course, the Turing test is much in the news right now because they <laughs> supposedly passed it. Yes, and I noticed that it was a 13 year old, however. So, you know, you can trick. 13-year-olds, I guess, um, they're, they're talking to a computer. I think, I think they, they said that the computer talking was a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy. Oh, exactly. Okay, so you can make a, people think that a computer who is, you know, acting like a 13-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it's slightly different, right? Because you that kind of goofball answers. I don't know. But I thought that was an interesting aspect of it. But. And a non-native speaker. So I, 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 think, uh, I think they may have blown it out of, uh, out of proportion. I bit. agree there. But the Turing test has its own set of problems problems anyway, right? Because it doesn't, it doesn't actually bother to define what thinking is. It just says, if it looks like thinking, the computer must be thinking. And exactly. And that's actually a very important part of this definition of post-human, you know, is this sort of like, what is thinking? What does it mean to, you know, have emotional thoughts, if you will, <laughs> you know, thoughts that are identified with human beings? It's so funny because I just saw the film Her last night and it's kind of blowing my mind still trying to get over that. So, 
Would you, would you say I, I have not seen that movie yet? Would you, would you say that it it goes along with your skepticism toward technology, or is it a it is a opti- optimistic toward posthumanism? I, it's really hard to say. You know, I I wish that you had seen it. It would be fun to talk about this maybe some other time. But it I, it's not optimistic. It's certainly not saying, oh, this is the answer to all of our problems. If anything, it says that technology can feed off of the essential disconnect or loneliness that people already feel, if you know what I'm what I mean about that. Sure. So it's like I need to connect with somebody and the only people I can connect with are machines, you know, because nobody really understands me. You know, something like that. So it accentuates this idea of how really disconnected we are, even though we're ultra connected. And, and again, I haven't seen the movie, but I suspect that, that what happens is we feel disconnected and then we turn to technology to ease that disconnection to mix my metaphors. And, and it works for a little while, but it's like drinking coffee when you're hungry. You end up just feeling sick afterwards. It, that's a very good analogy. And I think you'll enjoy the film. So I recommend it to you. I will have to, I'll have to see that. As I hope my introduction made clear, I agree with you that technological thinking is essentially the only sort of thought our society allows us to have anymore, or at least it's the dominant. It is. How would you characterize this sort of thought that leads to the ethical problems you discuss in this book? It's a good question. In my introduction or preface, I can't remember which, I, I talked about how, like, you know, the adage that everything that a hammer sees looks like a nail um, you know, and as soon as I came up with that particular metaphor that, you know, it's an old metaphor, but a good one, I realized that uh, Neil Postman had also used it in Technopoly, you know, <laughs> to describe the exact same phenomenon, which is once you start thinking of problems in a technological way as, as to be solved through technology, then that just feeds on itself and you, you stop thinking of other solutions to problems. And that is what it means to live in an advanced technological society is that everything has a technological problem, uh, a solution. Uh, and every problem is also defined technologically in a lot of ways too. That was the point of me talking about that George Saunders story, I Can Speak. It's like, well, what is a problem? Well, a problem then is what can be solved by technology. And so it just feeds on itself. Right, and in that story in particular, you have a non-problem that becomes a problem because exactly. we have a solution for it. Exactly so. It reminds me, a few years ago, I read an article that they were uh, that they had decided that certain forms of shyness are a personality disorder that can be treated with medication. <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, what, what, what else is that if not technology creating a problem where there really wasn't one? Right. That's that's an apt way to put it. And, you know, the whole pharmaceutical industry is a very interesting case in point. It is a technology, you know, um, developed to solve certain problems. And then, of course, it redefines uh, problems that it solves. Right. And you have to be careful because you can't just reject it outright. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry has done wonderful things for us. It's also Absolutely. done terrible things for us. Yeah. And I try to make that very clear in the book. I um I want to make sure that people don't get the impression that I'm a neo-Luddite in any way, shape, or form because I'm not. And I love my technology and the things that it's able to do as much as the next person. But one of the things that I think is really important is the difference between therapy and enhancement. And it's a very hard line to define. Like what, at what point does therapy become enhancement? But one of my colleagues put it this way, and I've just always remembered it. It's like just because it's a difficult line to find doesn't mean that there isn't a line. Right. It just means you have to keep looking. Exactly. It's constantly in motion. And every, you know, era, every generation or whatever might have a different place that that's located. But it's still very important to recognize, you know, it's not such a great idea to use technology for purely enhancement purposes um, unless you think about what the ramifications are for that. Whereas I have no problem whatsoever with technology used for um, therapy purposes. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the difference you see between therapy and enhancement? Mm. Well, the first thing I would say about it is it's very hard to define, as I just mentioned. But um, I would say that if you are able to identify a, you know, a particular disease, you know, and the word disease, you know, there's, there's something in what would be a normative human behavior that is, has radically gone wrong in somebody. Um, and I, I would say it's not normative, for instance, for people to be clinically depressed, like somebody like David Foster Wallace was. Right. 
you know, good example of somebody who, yes, should be taking, you know, pharmaceuticals and, in fact, you know, did successfully for some time and only ran into problems when he went off of his medication and then tried to go back on. So uh, that's a great example to me of a therapeutic use of pharmaceuticals. Whereas what we have today is people, students who are perfectly normal, normative, whatever you want to call it, and I think that that's a problematic term, let me make clear, but who are doing fine and functioning, taking Ritalin to stay awake and study better, um, you know, which is Ritalin is, of course, designed for ADHD, a very specific um, issue among children who can't concentrate because their brains are not working properly. And then, as opposed to children who can't concentrate because they're children. Right. Well, well, that's the other issue when it comes to children. But these are these are sort of like college students who are taking Ritalin to perform better, you know, or taking some kind of medication to stay up all night um, so that you can study better. That is enhancement. That's clearly not therapy. We're designed to sleep at night and we need to sleep at night. And if we try to jump over that, we're becoming something else. We've crossed over that line. And, and then you get... I mean, not to not to turn your critique of technology into a critique of capitalism, but I imagine we were going to oh. go there anyway. Oh yeah, uh, you you get in a in a competitive environment like a college or like a workplace or like a professional sports league. If you have some people using enhancement, everybody has to use it, or else be steamrolled. Exactly so, and it is so difficult. And and sports is an excellent example. It is the place where these kinds of questions are, you know, fomenting at a high level, right? And you see people getting angry about, you know, the Barry Bonds and the people who clearly were on these steroids and got an advantage that way. And so it becomes this kind of place to best see how these questions operate. People are like, well, why is that unfair? You know, what are the reasons why that's unfair and getting an unfair advantage? And what does that mean? You know, because people get unfair advantages all the time genetically, right? Um, I wasn't born six foot two and able to play basketball, right? Some people get genetic advantages just because they're born to certain couples or, you know, whatever else. Sure. So it's a tricky issue. But then, you know, if you're using, you know, steroids or some other kind of uh, gene therapy, which they're developing now for athletes, then it suddenly becomes a lot trickier. Yeah, and at a certain point, I guess, as a society, we have to ask ourselves, what level of unfairness are we willing to tolerate? Yes. Michael Sandel has a pretty good book on this. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but about – he talks a lot about sports in that issue uh, – in that uh, book. And, yeah, it's a question we have to answer. Lance Armstrong, another great example. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Lance Armstrong may be an example of why we shouldn't hold athletes up as heroes, but no. <laughs> There's a lot of examples that are, but, you know, certainly the whole gene doping or, you know, doping of some sort that he was doing really made a, a, a whole generation of people just say, wow, I can't believe he got away with it for, you know, that long. Um, and, of course, lying about it, and there's ethical issues that are associated with that as well. So in one sense, you could say, well, why don't you just open up the field and, and you know, just let everybody do it. And then it kind of evens it out after that, too. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, there might be some case to be made for that. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know the answers to these questions that I'm pretty good at raising. Um, they're hard questions to answer. But my point is to try to get be, behind the questions to the motivations behind why we do what we do. That was one of my goals in writing the book. Yeah, that, that comes through, I think. Uh, and so, so one of the goals of philosophy, as I understand, I am not a philosopher. Uh, but I, I read enough of it where I think I can can talk a little bit about what I think the goals are. It is to is to kind of poke things, right? To to take to take answers that that come too easily and rip them apart. Would you say that that philosophy as a professional discipline, to the degree it even still exists, is implicated in this societal slide into technopoly? Oh my goodness. Uh... I'm not sure how I'd answer that. My husband is a philosopher, so whenever people start asking about philosophy, I always like, hmm, let me call my husband. <laughs> um, what do you mean by uh, philosophy being implicated in it? You- uh, well, one of the one of the issues we're going to get to here in a minute is that you think literary critics have dropped the ball. Yes, and that's one reason why um, technological mindsets have been allowed okay. to to triumph. Is, is philosophy also guilty? Oh, I see. Um, I would say to a lesser degree, you know, philosophy within philosophy, you still have pockets of people and large pockets of people who are willing to ask the big questions 
You know, how should we then live, basically? How should we live? What does it mean to live the good life? And to the degree that philosophy is still foregrounding those questions is the degree to which it addresses this stuff head on. Now, you could argue about whether philosophy is doing that adequately, but there are at least philosophers who, you know, that's important to. For instance, Martha Nussbaum, who is a writer I rely upon quite a bit, you know, she talks about how philosophy for a while was also straying away from the ethical questions, but, you know, never, I think, as badly as the literary critics did, you know, during during the sort of dark years of the 80s and sure. 90s when sure. I was in grad school. <laughs> and, and Nussbaum, not coincidentally, is also a philosopher who has turned more and more to literary criticism as her career's yes. gone on. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why I like her so much, because she understands that fundamentally, you know, you need both of these disciplines to see these larger ethical questions clearly. Yeah, I mean, which I, I think is kind of the point altogether. Don't throw out disciplines, and and as as technology becomes more and more important, and as uh, as scientists and engineers become what Walker Percy calls the princes of the age, exactly, the other disciplines end up not having a voice in any well, meaningful way. And they literally don't have a voice. I don't know if you caught this in my book, but I was talking about a foundation called the Edge Foundation, right. You know, and and that is a very interesting think tank, and their whole attitude toward disciplines that are not science based to me is a very clear picture of the problem. They're excluding from their table, from being a part of the conversation, anybody who does not start with physical material realities as their as you know research in the sciences, empirical sciences, as their starting point. They're not even a part of the conversation. Theology, as you might have heard this from various of the, the, the quote-unquote new atheists, that theology is just bunk. Yeah, it's a non-discipline. Why, 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 should, why should Richard Dawkins have to know anything about theology to criticize it? Because it's a non-discipline. <laughs> it's amazing to me that you could have a thinker say even something close to that. And yet he does, as Dawkins does do, Clearly to state, yeah, theology, waste of my time. I don't need to know anything about it. But can you imagine if a theologian said that about science? I know. I, I know. But, but that, that, that goes to show you who the prince of the age is. Yeah, it is. And, and who, what they think is the source of truth, which is empirical realities only. So let's, so let's talk about the failures of literary criticism. All right. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. That's always fun. <laughs> literary criticism, um, in, in your opinion, didn't didn't fail because they went too far into scientism, right? Although I think that might be coming. Uh, <laughs> I think they might be about to fail article. in an entirely different way. But that's I've got a whole article that I've just uh, were, I just finished on literary Darwinism. So yes, I know what you're talking about. But but what what has happened to literary criticism that has made it unable to address the issues you would like it to address? Well, I would say this at the outset that it's less the case now. I mean. I, we have taken the quote-unquote ethical turn, you know, and the religious turn in literary studies as well. Post-secular is a term that maybe you've heard, uh, you know, bounced around. Sure. So it's less the case that we are in these dark ages now. But um, I think anything that still smacks of that kind of lie that was fomented by really bad practitioners of post-structuralist theory, and by which I mean the fool's gallery. Raymond Williams calls the bad Marxist the fool's gallery. So it's not the original workers on post-structuralist theory. It's the people who followed and, and tried to do their work. The practice that they had of systematically excluding anything that smacked of First of all, believing that something could be true or better than something else, right? That whole category. But then also any kind of totalizing rhetoric of any sort, like universal, this is universally true, or this is, you know, something that we should all pay attention to. Anything that smacked of that just became deconstructed and put out of view and wasn't even allowed on the playing field. Well, as soon as you do that, you have just removed all of the practical nodes of connection between your discipline and an ethics, which is a practical discipline. I mean, it, it has to be right. It, it, it has to talk about lived life, the ethos of one person coming in contact with the ethos of another. That's what ethics is. So 
you're, you're, you're immediately saying all of these questions can't even be on the table. And of course, the ironic thing is that everybody knows that in the practice of, of post-structuralist theory, including versions of Marxist post-structuralist theory and feminist, whatever is inherently ethical. Oh yeah. You know, so there's there too in this kind of exclusion. So it was sort of like, well, if you're not practicing the right kind of ethics, you don't get a voice in the conversation. The fool's gallery is not only betraying literary criticism, they're betraying post-structuralism. Yeah, well, I think so too. Um, I, I, saw this, I saw this lecture by Leonard Lawler, who's like a big continental philosophy guy, and he was, he was actually talking about Derrida's sense of ethics. Oh, yes. And it sounded just like Beauvoir to me, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. It sounded yeah. – it, it was very humanist and very um, interrogate yourself and make sure that you're responding to the other in the proper way and, and, and stuff that I, I think, as you say, would have been déclassé in the late yes. 80s and 90s in literary yes. criticism. and it's sad because Derrida and the sources of this post-structuralist theory, just as you say, they're not anti you know, It's just the, the bad followers of them made it into that, and it's really a, a loss. So, well, the two villains who emerge early on in *Prophets of the Posthuman* are Ray Kurzweil, who I expected, and I, yes. I, I think a lot of people would expect, and then Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, who, <laughs> who, who often maintained a Rousseauian skepticism towards civilization and progress and technology. In what sense is Emerson nevertheless responsible for the technopoly under which we live? This is one of my favorite questions. I can almost hear my students chuckling because I like to take out Emerson all the time in my classes. I think the reason why I target Emerson is because I was so seduced by him as a young undergraduate student. And it wasn't until I studied Flannery O'Connor that I realized how much, how badly he had infected my intellectual life. And so that's part of the reason why I constantly give him the boot. <laughs> but this, this romantic idea Right, the core of philosophical idealism, if you will, that I can, through the work of my mind, change anything that I want in in the in the physical world. That I don't, in a sense, have to be answerable to the physical world as an other, um, because I'm really not really responding to the physical world as an other. I don't see that in Romanticism, whereas I used to think that. I mean, for instance, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, as you know, one of the great American romantics, is very different on this point. And I would save him from all the charges that I put against um, Emerson. You know, when Thoreau writes about nature, he writes about nature. Right. When Emerson writes about nature, he's not writing about nature. He's you writing know. about himself. Yeah, he's writing about himself and the, the self-triumphant. And here's a good quote, and there's lots of good ones, of course, from Emerson, who is eminently quotable. But I say this to my students all the time, that Emerson wrote that prayer is the soliloquy of the jubilant soul. In my mind, that is a perfect example of the problem. You're talking to yourself. You know, there's not an other. There's not somebody who can interrogate you and tell you that you're wrong. Right. I mean, there's well, this in self-reliance. He has that line where his friend says, what if what if the way you're following is the devil's way and not God's? And, mm -hmm. and Emerson's response is, well, I'll follow the devil then. I'll follow the devil. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really not very. Um, first of all, uh, the biblical writers and, and uh, Proverbs would have a big problem with that for for one. But it's just not a good way to go. I mean, it, it's solipsistic. And you might as well just say, I can't learn anything from anybody else. How ridiculous is that? Don't you think, though, that Emerson's emphasis in other – he's such a complicated writer, yes. right? You have, to, you have to read basically everything to get some sense of what he's saying, which I'm not accusing you of not reading. Yes. Enough, but, but don't you think his emphasis on the oversoul and the interconnectedness of all things mediates that just a little bit? Um, it depends on, again, how you see the oversoul, yeah. right? Um, if you see it as fundamentally sort of disembodied and – um, not particular and, uh, you know, in that sense, transcendent um, and that that's separate from anything imminent, then I start to have some problems with it. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I, I, I just wonder, though, if, if the reason he calls prayer the soliloquy of the jubilant soul is because in talking to God, who is part of the oversoul, Mm -hmm. I, who am part of the Oversoul, am talking to myself in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's like a it's like a soliloquy within a larger being. I I don't I don't know. I'm not an Emersonian. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I just don't buy it. I think that the concept of otherness, in other words, part of what I'm, I'm emphasizing about Emerson is his failure to understand human beings as created and finite. Sure. That's, no, and I think that's, that's, that's fair. Part. Yeah. And whatever he thought, certainly the part of what's been passed down from him is not the oversoul half of the equation. It's the self-reliance half. Mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. it's trust yourself. Every, what is it, every string vibrates to that iron? I can't remember. Yeah, insist on yourself. Never imitate. You know, yeah, there's lots of good quotes, quotes there. Right, and the great takedown of Emerson, I think, um, and I, I would say this, our, our, our listeners know what, a, what an Updike fan I am, but the great takedown of Emerson is, is Updike's rabbit run because here's a, here's a man who does nothing but trust himself and it just destroys every other person in his life. Mm. But that's a... Uh, that's that's my that's my pet issue, not yours. So let's uh, let's talk instead about some of the issues and texts that you examine in your book. One thing you address here is the abstract nature of a lot of the ethics and technological movements. Um, my suspicion is that your suspicion of that abstraction comes from the existentialist and virtue ethics traditions. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But what is the problem with abstract ethics, and what's a better way to approach the subject? Mm, I actually think the virtue ethicists are more in my camp. To the extent that virtue ethicists argue for the importance of story or embodied narrative, I am in agreement. So if by virtue ethicists you mean people like Stanley Hauerwas or um, McIntyre, yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I'm on their side. Um, Nussbaum has this great piece about um, how – you have to be careful about either saying you're a Kantian or, you know, a virtue ethicist because um, it's better to sort of be in between those two. And I, I think her point is well taken, and I don't want to go into the particularities of that. But my problem is when you try to universalize things that, you know, and maybe in a Kantian way, although, you know, I always am fearful about what I say about Kant because my husband is a Kant scholar, but that you know, universalize things out of the context of their lived, you know, trial or their lived reality, you know, the, and their historical realities. So the virtue ethicists understand that, and it's not so much situational ethics as it is sort of saying, well, what's this story? What's this narrative? How does that embody this particular idea that we're talking about or this particular challenge. And what sort of person are you being made into by your actions? Yes. And, and the insistence of the virtue ethicist that your behavior forms your moral core over time has been proven now by neuroscience to be, you know, very accurate. So I'm on, I'm on the side of that. Um, definitely because part of what we don't understand today for instance, with regard to technology, is how much our actions are shaping us. You know, we go on Facebook all the time and we think, oh, no problem. That's shaping you into a certain kind of way of a, a person who thinks a certain way, right? Right. Right. And who expects certain things from the world and who mm -hmm. in encounters other people in a particular way. Yes. All of those things. And, and we are so far behind in the sense of being able to think about the changes that we've undergone, ju undergone just in our, my lifetime. I mean, my husband and I talk about this all the time. I'm 46 and I remember having a black and white TV, no VCR. Oh my. You know, I mean, it's sort of like, really? That in, you know, 30 years? And now, now, you, can, now you can mount your television on a <laughs> pair of glasses. Yeah, and, and that's just the beginning of what we're going to see in the next 15 years. You know, I have no doubt that we're going to be attached to the Internet physically within the next 15 or 20 years, you know, either, you know, in, into our eyeballs in some way, you know, like Charles Strauss writes about or, you know, on your ear, something. We're going to be all functional cyborgs in the future. So if, if virtue ethics is what you prefer, what would you say the, the people making our technological decisions, what ethical system are they using? Utilitarianism, I assume? Utilitarian. I, I mean, I think Nussbaum is really great on showing how pervasive that view is just in general in the United States, um, but in particularly in the people who are the techno-gnostics. They love the utilitarianism. You, you know – that, that argument I had with my friend about um, about the Google car, he said that if the Google car has to choose, it, it'll kill the driver. 
You know, if, it, if it's between killing, running into a telephone pole and killing the driver or running over two people on the road, it, like, automatically makes this calculation. That's and, interesting. And he just could not understand why I was so horrified <laughs> by, by the idea that I would let some tech millionaire in Silicon Valley make, Valley, uh, make my ethical decisions. For yeah, me. right. Well, you should be in favor of the other two people, not of yourself. <laughs> right. That's so funny. That's, a, that's really interesting. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, I don't. Pool, I don't. But I, I don't like the idea. I don't like the idea of somebody else making it for me. And and these people who, as far as I know, don't have extensive ethical training, right? I mean, no kidding. No, why would they? How would they? You know, they're yes. Oh, the only ethical principle they need is don't be evil, right? Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. No, no need to define that word. No, of course. <laughs> way way to go, Google, right? Yeah, but just try opting out. Um, in your analysis of Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Craig, now I haven't, I haven't read this book. I'm actually teaching it in the fall in a guided study. So, uh, so I you was, better read it. I was, yeah, I'll have to read it before <laughs> then, but I was, I was very interested to read your analysis of it. Um, you talk about this, this new phenomenon called techno-libertarianism, um, for which the highest and maybe the only value is the freedom of the, the individual and particularly the, the technological elite who are making these decisions. Mm-hmm. In the United States, freedom is what Richard Weaver calls a God term. It's a word that we're so conditioned to approve of that we basically don't examine any usage of it. So I want you to be un-American and tell us what's the problem with valuing freedom above all else. <laughs> well, you want me to be un-American. <laughs> yeah. Correct. I have to be. You have to kind of step out of the American milieu to make that comment, don't you? Right. Yeah. Because right. we hear that word as, as mm-hmm. Americans, and we just think, "Oh, it must be good." Yes, exactly. And that is part of the what motivated me to write this book is that the need constantly for us to critique that the autonomy of the human individual cannot be the highest value. We have to constantly critique the notion that it's supposed to be the best thing since sliced bread or whatever. You've got to take a step back and say, why do we think that? What has that gotten us? And one of the things that it doesn't get us is the ability to ask how our actions affect other people. I mean, as soon as you put the autonomy of the human individual and and the individual's freedom first, you cannot have ethics is what part of what I'm arguing and other people have argued before me. Um, so when it comes to technological decisions such as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you know, PGD, you only think about the parent's freedom to not have a child who has Huntington's disease, right? You don't ever think about the child, him or herself, because what, the matter, what matters is my own you know, individual autonomy. Because when they're making the decision, the child is an abstraction. Yes, that's part of the problem is they are unable to imagine the future child that this will come. In some ways, they, they are able to imagine. They're like, well, I don't want my child to have X kind of life. Well, and instead, what they've chosen for that particular child is no life. Right. Right. So that that's, of course, tricky because you are talking about you know fertilized eggs as opposed to actual children. But – Peter Singer and others show you that it's not very far removed to go to actual children. You know, Peter Singer will make that argument that parents have the right before a certain age to say, I don't, you know, I want to kill this child, you know, before the age of two, I think he says, because, you know, and that just goes to show you that it's a very difficult slippery slope, if you will, you know, once you start thinking in a utilitarian fashion about my own freedoms and my own autonomy. So the good of the other should be the the ultimate value? I don't want to be put in a corner of my body. <laughs> but one of the things that I, I do argue for is, is letting love be more of a determining factor in the way we make decisions and, and actually sort of foregrounding that as a notion, as a, as a goal. What does it mean to love? That's why I spend so much time talking about the example of the graduation gift of breast implants, which does happen. You know, is that love for your daughter to say, I'm going to give you, you know, breast implants for a high school graduation? It's kind of creepy whether it's love or not. Yeah, it's very creepy. And I I would argue that it's actually giving a negative gift. Because it's saying you should be self-conscious. You should be self-conscious and you're really not adequate the way you are. 
you know, that's essentially what you're saying to that girl is you're right. You know, you could be better. Let's fix you. And I think that's a devastating thing to say to somebody and it puts them on an infinitely, you know, it's, it's a line that's going to constantly move away from them their whole lives because you would say, well, I did this and, and, and that, you know, made me a little bit better. So now what's the next thing that I'm going to do that makes me a little bit better? And what other ways am I inadequate? That you, kind of you, you end up being Michael Jackson. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you do. I mean, I read a really horrible story about um, a woman. I can't remember. It was in Harper's Bazaar. I, I ordered Harper's and I thought I was getting Harper's Weekly and I got Harper's Bazaar instead. I didn't know there were two different things. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, one's a fashion, a glossy fashion magazine. <laughs> the other is this really, you know, intelligent <laughs> literary thing. And so I, I kept getting, they wouldn't stop sending it to me. And anyway, I, you know, so I stick it on the toilet and I was looking at it and I was like uh, reading this article about this model who started making plastic surgery changes and just couldn't stop. Oprah had somebody on who was talking about that too on her show at one point. Be- you were set on this sort of treadmill of, well, what's next? What can I perfect next? It's very sad. And, and, and at a certain point, you cross a line where I don't think anybody would argue you're perfecting anything. You're making it look worse make, and worse and worse. Yeah, and it's clear that this woman had done that, you know. And uh, it, a lot of what I talk about in the book with plastic surgery is in the chapter, you know, where I talk about the the swan. That's just one of the most terrifying. I remember that show. One of the most terrifying shows I've ever seen in my life. And, and as you say in the book, just performed with no sense of irony whatsoever. None. Zero. Uh, for our listeners who who are fortunate enough not to remember it, this one was a show where they offered uh, women I don't think most people would consider ugly. No. A, a chance to win plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. And be in a contest against each other. Right. For who is the, the, the best you know, outcome of the, of the plastic surgery. So it was even more insulting. You know, you go through all of that and then you could lose, (laughs) you know, and then, yeah, then I I would like to see a follow-up study uh, with the women who were on that show. I mean, fortunately it didn't last very long. I don't think it even lasted a full season, but yeah, it was one season and that's it. Yep. And in fact, they have had, of course, on YouTube, you can see follow-ups with some of the contestants and I show them to my students occasionally. They're horrifying. I, I imagine. And a lot of them gain back weight and just have all kinds of, of health issues, uh, surgical complications. It's it's really sad. Wh- whose life has ever been improved by going on a reality show, though? Nobody. Um, nope. I, I want to get back to this this ethics of love you talk about because okay. because love, obviously a biblical concept, obviously very important, but also one of the most easily abstracted and abused ideas – in, in right. human history, you, you, there's that quote from Flannery O'Connor about sentimentality when it's divorced yeah. from its source leads right to the gas chamber. Yeah. So, yep. so how, how do we define love in such a way that keeps it from being abstracted and tortured? That's a very good question. And I always rely on Thomas Aquinas when I think about his definition of love. And, and of course, he's not the only one who articulates it this way, but truly seeking the best for the other person. And as soon as you do that, it's obvious that you have to open up the question of what is best for the other person. And that is the bigger question behind um, the technological revolution, you know, biotechnology, because we too quickly answer the question by saying whatever seems best, right? Um, rather than really wondering what's best for that person. Or whatever they want. Or whatever they want, even worse, right? Or whatever the consumer culture tells them to want, even worse. But to, to really have a deep inquiry in what it means for a human being to flourish as a human being is a philosophical question. And it's the only – you have to ask that question if you want to be able to love somebody. Um, you know, Parents have to ask, what is the best thing for my children? To give them that is to truly love them. And that often means not giving them what they want, right? We all know as parents, it's, it's like the last thing you want to do is let the child pick out what to eat, for instance. You know, <laughs> that's not a great example because actually kids do a better job than what parents get for them sometimes on their own. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like you can't just say, well, yeah, whatever toy you want, let's just go get it because that's not love for them. It's not seeking the best for them as human beings, which to be a human being means that you don't always get what you want. 
right? So if we condition the child to think, I can get what I want, we are not loving them. That seems to me to be a pretty concrete kind of way of conceptualizing love. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. But that, that, makes, that makes any concept of love dependent on a prior notion of the good life, right? Yes, it does. And it does. You have to uh, answer that question, particularly to uh, deal with the things that I'm talking about here in this book. Well, this this brings us back to a point my friend made when we had this argument that that a lot of techno optimists make, which is that because a smaller percentage of people today are starving to death and dying violent deaths, this is the best society in human history. Can you help me articulate what I find so distasteful about that argument? Okay, this is the best society in human history, meaning American culture right now. Uh, the world in general. This is the best time to live. Stephen Pinker made this point in in that that book he released a few years ago, "The Better Angels Angels of Our Nature," that you are because you're less likely today than any other time in history to die of starvation or illness uh, or violence. This mm-hmm. is this is thus we're living in the best society human history has produced. That's a yeah. Um, it's a hard question to answer except to say what's best, right? Um, and Flannery O'Connor is very good at this because she often kills off her characters right after they have this great spiritual awakening. So it's sort of like, wait, you just killed them off. How could you do that? Because she can do that because she's saying that a life lived with five minutes of actual self-recognition that's truthful is better than a whole life of being the walking dead. Of, of being somebody who's spiritually out of whack and unhappy. And Walker Percy writes about this all the time. Yeah, he's, he's, so, he's so interested in why people are – they live in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, I think is his example, mm-hmm. or Shaker Heights, Ohio. I think he has Anywhere, a couple. Yeah. They, they live in these, these, these high-class suburbs. All their, 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 everything is provided for them. They, they should be happy, and yet they're not happy until a hurricane destroys it. Exactly. Or somebody else has some kind of tragedy that they can, you know – Think about ultimate questions through, <laughs> you know, the, you know, why is always asking, why does the suicide rate go down when you're in war or when, you know, say North Dakota got bombed, the suicide rate would go down. Why is that? You know, because people are inherently interested in these ultimate questions and are removed from the banality of their own existence. So, yeah, we've got this great life in the sense of we're less likely to die but that does not necessarily give you a high quality of life um, or, you know, a deep um, joy. Right. Yeah. And, and I was going to say pe- people aren't necessarily any happier today, but maybe that's not even the right thing. Maybe we should be looking at fulfillment or joy or other, other things that are even harder to quantify. Mm-hmm. Well, human flourishing is a good term, too, because then right. it raises the question of what does that mean to flourish? Well, you can't, you can't quantify it, so it's a question you're not allowed to ask. Right, right. Well, have you seen the film Transcendence, for instance? I haven't. Okay. That, it, it's a, about a man who successfully downloads his consciousness into a computer or they has it done for him just before he's about to die. And the movie fails for a number of reasons. I wrote a review on it. It's on the, online somewhere. But, I mean, one of the things that it just shows you is for a human being, it's not flourishing to live like that. I, I think it shows that. I mean, but to live where you don't actually have a body and you sort of just are engaging with the world intellectually, um, you know, it's yeah, flat. it's literally flat. I mean, you're, you know, you're sort of on a screen, right? Um, but but that's why I think Martha Nussbaum's ideas are so important because she's constantly saying, for a human being, what does it mean to live the good life? Yeah, not man. for a computer, you know, not for a dog. For a human being, and chances chances are uh, we're either being told we're computers or we're animals. Exactly. Yeah, it's one or the other. Right? You've either disembodied uh, mind, or you are meat, and you know, sort of do what you want. Or both. Doesn't is it mm-hmm. Jerry Jerry Coin who calls us meat computers? There you go. Right. It's just like we were saying before about how those ends, you know, go back on each other, the sort of monism and, you know, dualism. They, they feed back on each other. It reminds me a little of Google's next quest, which is to eliminate death. Um, yeah. And as, well, a good, as a good Heideggerian, I'm, I'm just I'm filled with so much disgust at the thought that that human life could go on 
forever. Like the, the whole point is we die. Like that, that is how you orient yourself in the world. What's it going to look like when we have 6 billion people who aren't going to die or more uh, likely a thousand people who aren't going to die. And, and there'll be Western rich people. Right. Um, that's the other thing. And taking up resources and at the expense of others, you know, there are lots of ethical questions that that raises. And Ray Kurzweil is just a perfect example of somebody who just skirts around those issues all the time. I mean, it, it's really talk about the value of individual autonomy. There it sits. You know, my self is more important and more valuable than, you know, solving poverty or, you know, whatever else for the other people in the world to have their chance at a life. You know who's written a really good article on that is Leon Cass. It was in First Things. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, Lahayim and Its Limits. And, you know, the subtitle is Why Not Immortality? It's an excellent piece um, against this whole idea of the vision of immortality f- for human beings here. There's so many good arguments against it um, mm-hmm. that, that hopefully somebody will listen to one of them. Hopefully. We're just, we have such obviously strong desires to, you know, stay alive, the survival instincts and, and all of that, but then we can't let that occlude our judgment. Again, you go back to the idea of love. What does love mean? And, you know, Cass talks about this too. Um, it's, it's being able to know when your time is done here. Right. <laughs> yeah. You have to know when to leave a party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> for the others, for the benefit of right. the others. Right. Yeah. The host, the host has to go to bed too. Yeah. Um, for me, the most exciting chapters of your book were the last two, which uh, cover works that on the surface don't seem to be about technology at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to start with Raymond Carver's A Small Good Thing, which some mm-hmm. of our listeners may know better as the basis for the Lyle Lovett plot in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, is, what does A Small Good Thing have to say about technology and human life? Oh, uh, I, I think one of the great things about that story is that it's so – unclear from it just taking one look at it that it's about technology at all but it is because technology has put the people in the situation that they're in with regard to a kind of suburban community which means no community right you've got (laughs) baker he's not a person he's the baker and he works in a strip mall and Anne, who's the main character of the story, goes and orders a birthday cake from the baker. And their interactions with each other are completely uh, commercial. Um, they're not in a community together. And then via, you know, via the car, she gets there. Via the telephone, he calls her and says, you know, why haven't you picked up your cake yet? Have you forgotten about Scotty? And of course, the reader of the story knows that Scotty has just been hit by a car and is in a coma in a fight for his life. And so it it's brilliantly foregrounding the failure of community, you know, in our sort of suburban context. Um, it's not, again, you can't say, oh, it's the fault of technology, but technology has allowed it to reach these kind of proportions, you know. Um, it, may, it makes a villain out of this guy who's not actually doing anything villainous. No. In fact, he's not. He's just being what he's, you know, bred to be, uh, a baker. Um, but, but his aloneness and is, is part of the problem, you know, in the sense of everybody's aloneness is part of the problem. We don't – we aren't able to easily connect. We're not in community with people we normally would be in community with because they're our physical neighbors, and instead, then we end up disconnect. You know, there's a great movie, Disconnect, too. It made me just think of that. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't. I, I feel bad. I haven't seen any of your movies. No, no, it's okay. I, I reference shortcuts, though. That has to win me some. Points. That does. It does. It does. But I, I think it's just a marvelous look at what needs to happen to break through that. And that's why I make this argument about contingency that Raymond Carver, I think, understood the importance of contingency, contingency, these little accidents that, that happen. Now, I mean, it's a big accident that's run over by a car. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. And it's not again to say that Carver is saying everybody should get, you know, have kids run over by cars, not at all, or that God would say that or anything. It's just to show what kind of severe thing has to happen for people to be snapped out of that. Right. That, that suffering facilitates community somehow. Mm-hmm. It does. Or it it's, can. It doesn't have to, right? Because it can also push you further into your alienation. It can. Yeah. And again, it's not like suffering is the answer. You know, uh, the answer is learning from suffering when it occurs. <laughs> you know, 
the lessons that we need to learn, which is precisely what we are, as an advanced technological culture are not trained to do. Right? Yeah, right. We're trained to look at suffering as something to escape as quickly as possible, not to learn from and exceed, you know, and then be in a situation where you have to receive the grace of others. You know, you have to. Because grace is not possible without suffering. Without need, right? If right. you don't think you need anything, then grace is incoherent, hmm. right? If you don't need a God to, to uh, help you, if you don't need an other to help you, and you're totally self-sufficient, of course, that's an illusion, but that's part of what I'm writing about, then grace doesn't make any sense. So we live in a culture that's constantly pushing against the very things that would help us to understand grace, right? That's what Albert Borgman, Borgman's point is, and I rely on him. He's a you know philosopher about technology a lot in this chapter because he understood that grace is dependent upon contingency. And if you try to eliminate contingency, you will eliminate the conditions necessary to receive grace and understand it as grace. Yeah. And That's profound. It, it is, yeah. And Borgman's a, a Christian too, isn't he? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. I remember I read, I read the uh, technological uh, – what is it? Technology and the Character of – yeah, contemporary yeah. society. Yeah, that's a good book. And I got I got very interested in how he lives. So I uh, I'm sure he would love to know this. I looked up his address on using the Yellow Pages and uh, Google Earth, and I saw that he lives on top of a mountain. And I he thought, does? well, there's there's Borgman. He's uh, he's at least consistent in his uh, in his thoughts. Wow, what is the mountain? It's in uh, Montana because he teaches mm-hmm. at University of Montana. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm I'm not sure what Borgman would say about my my cyber stalking him. To figure out yeah. if he was a hypocrite or not. That's true. That's, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure either. <laughs> but I, I, I was writing a, I was writing an essay on uh, Sarah Rule's In the Next Room. Do you, do you know that play? I know Sarah Rule, but I haven't read the play. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's excellent. But but I, I, I was making a point that she's she's rather uh, staunchly anti-technology. And, and one of my students asked if she wrote the play in the dark. And I said, well, no, she didn't. But I was reading her through Heidegger's question concerning technology. And I said, no, she probably didn't. But Heidegger, Heidegger almost certainly did. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so some people at least are, are, are consistent, even if the rest of us uh, rage are against right. technology while they use it. Yes, exactly. Well, you conclude your book with a reading of Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, which you treat as a profoundly ca- countercultural novel and kind of a way for us to live, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what makes that work such a challenge to our technological society? Oh, that's a great question. Anybody who picks it up nowadays, and of course my base for most of my observation is my students, they have such a difficult time getting into the book because it's so slow. You know, it's it's a letter written by – a father to his son, and it's not full of drama. It's it's plotting. It's slow, and because it's so slow, because it really demands a lot of patience from the reader and attention. It, it's very frustrating for a group of students and people who are used to sort of little bits and quick things. Uh, twit, tw- what he tweets. I'm, I don't use Twitter, so I'm yeah, not I'm either. <laughs> But these little soundbite things that you can easily digest and move on. And Gilead forces you to be a different kind of reader. Catherine Hales talks about two different types of attention, the deep attention and hyperattention. Well, our society, you know, with the Internet and the way it is, teaches all about hyperattention, video games and all of that. But you have to go out of your way to learn about the deep kinds of attention. Both, she says, are necessary. But our Internet culture teaches only the hyperattention or fosters only the hyperattention. Gilead fosters deep attention in order to be able to read it and understand what's going on. So I think even just the process of sitting with this novel does what it's trying to do. It's kind of the opposite of Emerson, right? Because Emerson's like a proto-Twitter user. You know, exactly so, with these uh, sort of uh, pithy... Um, phrases. Yeah, he, his his essays are like collections of bumper stickers. You <laughs> yes, could you yeah. could cut up the sentences and put them in different orders, and I don't think anybody would know the difference. You know, that's an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it. But yeah, proto Twitter. But yes. Ro- Robinson, you're right. I mean, demands the exact opposite. You can't mm-hmm. you can't digest her quickly. She and and you know nobody from the 19th century, I think, would have had a hard time reading her novel. 
nobody, nobody would because they're trained on Dickens and, you know, George Eliot and these other writers who, you know, they require sustained attention over many, many hundreds of pages, you know, and uh, Gilead is much more in that camp. And, and, you know, it, with even less drama, right? Than, right, right. Yeah, because the, the book is it, there. There is no central conflict, really. Mm. I mean, there's there's a kind of tension. There's tensions, um, you know, but it's mostly about this father. Can he really deal with the fact that he's not going to be around for his son and the influences of uh, this other man that could potentially be nefarious? You know, he's worried about that. But it's really about how he works through that. And what a picture of life that is, uh, seeing a man who I think is a wonderful character because he's formed himself spiritually, you know, um, by the things he's read and worked through. And you see him in the process of working out difficult issues for himself, um, how, learning how to love somebody he doesn't want to love or he doesn't feel inclined to love. When was the last time you read a novel? that showed you working, see, you know, showed you a picture of somebody working through that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I can think of another one. I can't either. And uh, power and the glory, power and the glory. But th- you yeah, know, that's, that's a good, that's a good 50 years before yeah. Gilead. Yeah. And it's, it's less interior because I mean, you know, in that way, because the first person letter uh, that Gilead is, is so intimate. Right. right? But yeah, you're right. I mean, anything by Graham Greene is going to touch on that same, that same idea. But yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not something that. It's not something that the contemporary novel does terribly well. No, it's not interested in it. We don't have the patience for it. And yet, Gilead was a bestseller, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was. It was certainly. A, it was certainly a big critical hit. Yeah, Pulitzer Prize winner sells a lot. Um, so. It's not to say that we're not capable of it or even that we're not we're not interested in this kind of deep attention. I think it maybe its popularity shows how much we long for it. I think that's possible. So so what can we do to recapture it? What can we do to fight the technopoly? Well, that's a big question. And if you're talking about the the kind of need for developing deep attention, I'm always talking about not only reading but um reading poetry because you know the practice of reading poetry fosters deep attention. But I think awareness, working always toward awareness about how we use technology, how it affects the way we're thinking, and, and not just to default to it, but to constantly be asking, okay, what does it mean that I, every day when I wake up, the first thing I do is open up Facebook, you know, on my, with my phone by my bed? You know, to actually ask that question uh, is one of the things that I think we need to do. So really what my book is about is, is pointing people toward that Heideggerian idea of unconcealing, you know, mm-hmm. see what's really going on. See what really is at the backbone of the way that you're thinking and that you're living your life. Heidegger, Heidegger posits poetry is the alternate form of techne too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's, the, uh, it's the, the great challenger to technology. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course, he was a horrible poet, but we won't hold that against him <laughs> <laughs> because he's fundamentally right about a lot of things, you know. But just, yeah, interrogating your mode of being in the world and, and recognizing it, um, you know, being contemplative about it, I think, is the only response because we're not going to stop technology. You know, you're not going to somehow go, well, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a neo-Luddite and, and therefore people are going to stop using computers. I mean, Wendell Berry's got that essay, right, about why I don't use a computer. That's just not practical, right? You have to work in your own workplace and they rely on computers and they rely on emails. So we can't avoid the technology. So since you can't avoid it, you've got to find out what it's doing to you and, and be aware of that and help let that shape how you use it. So, Is it a conflict, do you think, between technology and art? Hmm, that's a really big question. Depends on what you mean by conflict. Um, I mean, I think art does inherently um, insist upon deep attention if it's really art. Um, but I mean, of course, what is what am I say? What is really art? You know, um, you get into the Duchamp's putting up 
the toilet bowl and calling it art. You know, I mean. Of course, he might be asking you to pay closer attention to the toilet bowl, right? Exactly. 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 Or a Warhol. I was thinking, I've been thinking, I heard a radio program about Warhol's Empire film, the six hour, I think it's eight hours of, of nothing but a single shot of the Empire State Building. Interesting. And and that that's a sort of demand for attention, right? It is. No, and I, and I think that's right, actually. So that is right, because even Duchamp, and I would make this argument about all art, it, it's asking you to pay attention to something. And attention involves usually kind of these deep modes of attention. It's not enough to just say, I see it and I've consumed it and I'm moving on, right? So art is constantly, I think, asking for those deep modes of attention. So it, in that way, it is at odds with technology. Which is about paying attention to 40 things at once or – Well, it's about maximum efficiency. Right. The, the reign of technique, like Jacques Ellul talks about. What's the maximum – the way I can maximally do whatever my you know, productivity needs are and never wondering about what I'm doing is worth my time or not. Um, just can I do it faster? <laughs> and, and, and Borgman gets into that too. He talks about how, how, yeah, sure. You're doing things more efficiently, but are you doing it better? Mm-hmm. What, what are you, what are you, what are you losing out on by, by playing a record instead of learning to play the guitar yourself? Mm-hmm. 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 I can, if we don't ever stop and think about why we're doing what we are doing, that's, you know, problematic. Just because you can do it better or faster doesn't mean you should be doing it at all. Right. You know? And so that the reign of techne just it, it, it it's almost it's maddening. It just dislodges those questions. It pushes them aside. I, I did a class on art and technology last last semester, and oh, okay. it was very interesting to see the students suddenly become aware that their bottom line for everything was efficiency. Like they, they they would be in the middle of making an argument and they would say, oh, I'm making an argument based on efficiency, aren't I? Oh, they would recognize it. Excellent. You did a good job then. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I hope they, I hope they keep doing it. Because because students don't think about it. I mean, I think you noticed that like at first, you know, when they come into your classroom, they hadn't really thought about it. And then all of a sudden, whoa, this, this is what I'm trying to do. That's what English classes can do. They can, yeah, they can, they, they can make you aware. They make you aware. They should. I'm curious about the receptions uh, that you've gotten for, uh, to this book so far. It came out last year, so I, I assume the reviews have been coming in at least to some extent, at least as much as they ever do for academic books. Uh, how much have people been calling you a technophobe or a neo-Luddite or whatever, and, and how do you respond when and if they do? Well, it came out in the fall of 2013, so the reviews I've only read, there's only been one review that's been out on it, and it was in the Christian Scholars Review, So, and it was a favorable review. I suspect the reviews should start appearing, you know, hopefully they do because the worst thing is to be ignored. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I really struggle, probably the biggest struggle I have with this book, with writing it and um, talking about it, is that it's a book that it's very hard to find the audience for it. It's its ideal audience. And I knew that when I was writing it, but I really wanted to write it anyway because I kind of walk this line between these different disciplines and it's not purely literary criticism, but it's not purely ethics, you know. So I'm I'm hoping to find the right audience for it. And so I have no idea how people are going to review it in these various contexts in which I've sort of submitted it for review or had my publisher submit it for review. Where did you Where did you submit it? Just out of curiosity. Oh well, they do a whole bunch of. They have a huge list, you know. Um, I mean, just just anything from the New York Times book review, and you're like, oh yeah. We'll see. <laughs> so that, that'll be the day, huh? Yeah, that'll be the day. Um, you know, down to any of the, the the journals that are sort of specifically with contemporary American literature, which is, of course, what it's focused on. Um, I was so. a little surprised Books and Culture hadn't reviewed it yet. Oh, they're they're working on it. I know that they're doing that. They've they've had um, they're having four different reviewers do it. So I just oh, don't wow. here. You know, they do that with a couple of other things where I've been a part of these teams of three or four people talking about one film. And I remember you- they did that with James K. Smith last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, okay, that was yeah, that was one piece written by four people. Oh. This, like they'll do like four different people's five hundred word take on it. Oh, I see. I- yeah, so I think that's what John has planned for it, um, but I haven't seen it yet. 
Um, but it must be soon. I mean, I'm hoping. So I have no idea what people are going to say. Well, I hope they like it as much as I did. I, I really, I really, like I said, uh, I wish I'd read it three weeks earlier so that I could have made some of these arguments. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's really kind of you. And it's just nice to get, when you get the readers that you think will actually get something from it, it's always a really big blessing, you know, to, I, you know, I write, I work hard on my books and it, I spend a lot of time to make it right. You know, I'm not one of these people who slaps stuff off. It takes, takes years. Do, so it's, do you have a, a next project in mind? Yeah. Um, well, I was just on sabbatical this spring. So my main purpose in the sabbatical was to decide which of the options of the things that I'm thinking about I'm actually going to step into. Which of the four or five things I could write for a book will I actually pursue? And what I'm leaning toward is an argument that – and narrative is inherently theological. So writing a book through contemporary American literature that seems to be untheological. And I always get the example of Cormac McCarthy thrown in my face when I talk about theology and narrative. You know, but I, a lot of the book will be about Cormac McCarthy. I know that much, no matter what tack I take. That's He seems pretty theological to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think most people understand that he is. But, you know... Um, certainly asks these these larger questions. Um, so, but by which I mean, if I'm going to do this sort of inherently theological argument, it's to say that our culture, of course, the the Dawkins and those guys are trying to dismiss theology as is irrelevant in the naturalist materialist universe. So it would be in the context of our naturalist materialist universe that I would make this argument. That's that's what I'm leaning toward. I've also thought of maybe even a separate project just on post-apocalyptic fiction and why it's so appealing right now. No, no kidding. Speaking of McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And you can go back to Percy. Oh, yeah. Percy, McCarthy. I mean, I'm really – I love The Walking Dead, both the comic books and the TV shows. I, I have a insatiable diet for post-apocalyptic fiction myself. So asking <clears throat> why that's so interesting at this day and age. Answering that question to the best of my ability is another way that I could go. Well, whatever, whichever of those books comes out, I hope you'll come back on the show and talk to me about it. Yeah, I would love to. It's been a delight. Um, our guest today was Christina Bieber-Lake uh, from Wheaton College. Uh, if you would like to read the show notes or comment on uh, this episode, our web address is christianhumanist.org. Until next time, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.